Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that this spring will offer special volunteer vacations designed for visitors to spend a day doing stewardship projects and another day heading out on the Tillamook Coast for an adventure. It's a free way to have fun and give back, and we'll have more details on this experience just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department invites Oregonians to explore parks during winter and spring to experience the beauty of those seasons. If you're camping, remember to buy firewood from the park or nearby community to avoid bringing invasive species, such as the devastating emerald ash borer, into parks. Learn more about protecting Oregon's ash trees at stateparks.oregon.gov. All right, in today's episode, we're going to talk about some of the biggest outdoor news stories from the past month and a few great places to travel in this upcoming month of February. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. In today's episode, we're going to do a little outdoors news update, then we'll do a quick hit on a few great places to travel, and we'll finish off with one of my favorite road trips in Oregon and just across the southern border. Now, the inspiration for this podcast is that I send out a newsletter about once a month. It's called the Explore Oregon Newsletter. It basically sums up everything we've been reporting and writing about over the past month. The stories are all over the map combining hard news and travel features with personality stuff. And it's all in one place. So it's a pretty mixed bag, but it has proved popular and a, a way that people like to learn about Oregon's outdoors. So I'm going to try to replicate that a little on this podcast. I can't include every story that we had this past month or that shows up on the newsletter, but I did think it was a good venue to talk about some of the most interesting or impactful stories. So in the first half, we'll have a mishmash of stories that we reported from this past month. And then in the second half, to keep things a little lighter, I'm going to include a conversation about a great winter and spring road trip on Oregon's south coast, just down to the state line at Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park, one of my favorite places on earth. It might make for some odd transitions, but hey, we're all about trying new things here. By the way, if you want to be added to the newsletter, just shoot me an email or a message on social media. The email address is at the end of every story I write, so you can find it there, but it's just zerness at statesmanjournal.com. Okay, let's jump into it. All right, so one of the biggest outdoor stories of the past month was that four dead whales washed ashore on the Oregon coast. And they just happened to wash ashore right at one of Oregon's most popular beaches at Fort Stevens State Park, 
which really put the issue front and center. There's a good chance that you heard about it on the TV news or online, or you at least heard a joke about Oregon using dynamite to explode the whale carcass as we so infamously and delightfully tried back in the 1970s. By the way, you can keep asking, but Oregon is not going to do that again, no matter how much you want them to. Okay, so back to the issue at hand, because having so many visible whale deaths really did get people worried, understandably so. But let's start off by touching on each situation. Among the whales that washed ashore, two were at Fort Stevens. That included a sperm whale that died after getting hit by a ship. Then there was a baby whale that died very soon after being born. It wasn't a stillborn as officials suspected early on, and it's still unclear exactly why the baby whale died. Federal officials did take tissue samples to see if they could glean anything from that. The other two whales that stranded were a gray whale that washed ashore at Winchester Bay and died after apparently being attacked by killer whales. And a fourth whale, another gray whale, washed ashore at Sunset Beach at E. Cola State Park. That one had shark bites, but it's not clear if that was the cause of death. So overall, we've got three gray whales and one sperm whale that died and washed ashore. And now we get to that tricky issue of whether this is a big deal or not. And the official answer is going to be kind of confusing, and it's that two opposing things are kind of true at the same time. So what I mean is that, first off, no, this really isn't a huge deal. Between six and ten whale carcasses wash ashore on the Oregon coast every year. My story has a breakdown by year, by species, but this happens. It just does. It's just that normally it happens in less visible places, so people don't see it and it doesn't become quite so newsworthy. Also, three of the whales were gray whales, which are currently migrating down the Oregon coast in massive numbers as part of their annual migration from the Arctic down to the Baja. They'll actually migrate back in late March. It's not surprising that there would be some dead whales as part of that huge migration, and some of those that die do wash onto our coastline. So overall, four dead whales, it might seem like a spike, but it's not necessarily out of the norm, according to the officials who track this sort of stuff. But there is a second answer here that is concerning, and that has to do with the fact that gray whales are really struggling in recent years. Overall, they've actually been a success story in past decades due to their ability to survive and even grow their numbers amid this changing ocean conditions. But that's changed since 2016, and their numbers have declined 38% to an estimated population of 16,650 animals. The population had its fewest surviving calves on record last year since counts began in 1994. So something troubling seems to be going on. It's something that wildlife officials do have a close eye on. It has been linked to warming in the Arctic Ocean, where the whales feed, and somehow that might be disrupting the amount of food that they have but we're just not sure. So to sum this up, the whale strandings on the Oregon coast were not really something to be worried about in and of themselves, except that long-term, this could be an indication of something to be worried about, which I know it's about as clear as mud, but that's what we've got right now. Right, so staying on the topic of warming, we collected the final weather data from last year, and it turns out that 2022 
was tied for the 10th warmest year in Oregon records going back to 1895. So this was tied for 10th warmest. The average temperature across the state last year was 48.4 degrees. Now that's lower than the hottest year on record, which was 2015. And if you were around then, you probably remember 2015 is a, just a bizarre year where there was basically no snow in the mountains all winter. Like I remember hiking up to Marion Lake in like January and there's just no snow there. So that year averaged out at 50.4 degrees. So this year was 48.4, 10th warmest. The record, the warmest year was 50.4. Now, as you might expect, just about every year recently has made the top 10 warmest years on record. Uh, it's actually a surprise if it doesn't at this point. So last year made the list, 2021 made the list. So did 2020. Of the 13 hottest years ever recorded in Oregon, nine have come since 2000 and seven have come since 2010. So yes, it's been hot, but every year is hot in its own unique way. For example, 2021, we had the heat dome. And that was, you know, we shattered the record for the hottest temperature ever recorded in Oregon. This year, we didn't have anything quite that extreme, but we did have a pretty incredible swing. So this past spring, if you remember the spring of 2022, was one of the coolest and wettest on record. And if you remember, that led to a really great early summer for where we saw basically no wildfire. It was, it was delightful. You know, you were out there, felt like, you know, the old wet rainforest of Oregon. But then from July to October, we had the warmest such period in recorded history. And that set the stage for those late autumn wildfires. So big swings this year from very cool and wet to very, very hot for just extended periods of time. There was, you know, records for the number of days with uh, temperature above 90 degrees and stuff like that. In terms of water, Oregon's precipitation was 91% of normal. So a little dry, but nothing extraordinary. It did continue to be dry, drier than normal east of the Cascades. Now, this sort of follows a trend that we've seen and that climate scientists have indicated about coming years in Oregon. And that's that on the west side of the state, we'll probably see about normal precipitation into the future and maybe even a little bit more precipitation than historical averages, all while temperatures continue to get warmer. On the east side of the Cascades, it does appear to just be getting warmer and drier. So that's sort of what we're expecting. And that's what we've been seeing in recent years. Okay, we're going to take a turn from the newsier items to a fun place to travel. And in this case, I'm talking about a ski or snowshoe trip to Gold Lake, a great adventure southeast of Eugene, right at Willamette Pass off Highway 58. So this trip begins at Gold Lake Snow Park and it follows a snowed over Forest Service road to Gold Lake Campground. It's about five miles round trip, and the upsides are pretty great. It's a scenic forested road. If you're cross-country skiing, there are some fun downhills, but it's definitely a green, easy trek, ideal for beginners, but, you know, still a little bit fun. And then at Gold Lake, there is a snow shelter where you can kind of warm up with a fire stove, and have like, you know, a little lunch or dinner before heading out for a really cool view of snow-covered Gold Lake. This trip just has a lot of good stuff on a pretty friendly ski or snowshoe tour. Another thing I like is that you can make it a little bit more challenging. 
Uh, so instead of staying on the main Gold Lake Road the entire way, you can branch out into the forest and follow the Maryland Lakes Trail to add a little spice to your journey and see a few more snowy lakes. And then if you want a bigger adventure, you can follow trails out of here to Maiden Peak Shelter, which is a fully enclosed backcountry cabin where people do like to spend the night. As with any trip, do make sure to have a map before heading out. And in this case, it's actually helpful because you can just go to the Forest Service website for Gold Lake Snow Park and can download a really good map that shows the area in very good details. But I'll always harp on getting a Willamette Pass winter recreation map if you can. Um, so just go to a Forest Service office and try to get one of those. They can be kind of hard to come by, but they're so wonderful because they show the entire Willamette Pass area, all the different trails and snow parks and possible adventures. It's just really fun to look at. It's really helpful when you're out there and you can just kind of dream about your next adventure when you're not, not out in the snow. One last note, uh, this snow park is right next to Willamette Pass Ski Area and Odell Lake, which has two places you can rent cabins for the night. So my perfect trip up here, which is one I did earlier this year, would be to cross-country ski or snowshoe for one day, maybe to Gold Lake, maybe somewhere else. And then you can stay overnight at Odell Lake or Shelter Cove Resorts. So you got that, you know, skiing or snowshoeing one day, stay overnight at a snowy cabin. And then next, the next day you can go downhill skiing at Willamette Pass. Oh, and make sure to get dinner at Odell Lake Resort. It's just a really charming place with excellent food surrounded by snow. It's got this kind of Swiss lodge feel to it. Very old school, you know, exposed timber beams, you know, the whole nine yards. It's great. Okay, after that pleasant little reprieve, we're going to jump back into some newsy stuff. And in this case, I reported the number of boating-related deaths in Oregon. Now, the good news here is that Oregon saw its lowest number of boating fatalities since 2017, and that was a total of 16 deaths. That number is way down compared to the record of 27 fatal accidents that were recorded in 2020. There are some caveats, though. A big reason boating deaths were down this year, and I mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier, was the cold and wet spring. So one of the deadliest times of year for boaters in Oregon is the early and late spring when, you know, the temperature warms up, but the water is still very high and very cold. There's often a lot of fatalities. But this year, because it was just so cold, there was just a lot less people on the water and less accidents as a result. Uh, the second thing to keep in mind, and this happens every year, uh, but when you look at the stories behind this year's boating deaths, as I always do, it's just really heartbreaking in every case. It can be easy to look at this as just a numbers thing. Um, you know, since this is a story that I track every year, I track the numbers. You can lose that human element, but I always make, but I always make a point to look at the circumstances behind it. And it's just always just universally tragic. You know, in one case, a dad left behind four daughters in their teens in another case, a young couple died outside Eugene. In another, a dad was uh, boating at a reservoir on his son's birthday. It's just brutal. And I say that to stress wearing a life jacket because it's true that every year, a majority of the fatal accidents involve people not wearing a life jacket. This year, it was 10 of the 16 people that died were not wearing life jackets. It's the single best thing you can do to be safe and not be one of those tragic stories. 
A few other trends that were noted by the Oregon Marine Board, which keeps track of these statistics, is that first, people who are using stand-up paddle boards need to make sure they have the right leash for their situation. And if you've ever been on a stand-up paddleboard, you know what I mean. There's usually a little leash that you know attaches to your life jacket or somewhere or your ankle that basically keeps the board attached to you if you fall off. The problem is, if you're on moving water, like a river or a creek, you need to make sure you have a quick-release leash. Over the past two years, there have been a handful of fatal accidents where people had leashes that got tangled up in trees or other hazards, and then they got pulled into strainers and drowned that way because the leashes just didn't release. It was the wrong kind of leash. Think about that kind of stuff. You know, if you're going to float down the Willamette, you know, you can definitely do that. I've done it. It's a lot of fun on a stand-up paddleboard. You just got to make sure you have the leash that will release and that isn't going to get you tangled into stuff and get you into trouble. Another trend that they noticed with uh, people having trouble with uh, equipment was something called inflatable life jackets that haven't always been working properly. Maybe they're too old or whatever. Honestly, I have no experience with inflatable life jackets. I just wear the normal life jacket when I'm out there. But I guess they're very popular and apparently they don't always work. So keep that in mind if you're using an inflatable life jacket. As far as hotspots for fatal accidents, Southern Oregon's Rogue River and the Willamette River both had three boating fatalities. Um, there's a lot more information in the story, including a breakdown of what happened in each case or a little breakdown of what happened in each case. So you can find that there at statesmanjournal.com. Okay, let's hit these next ones a little bit quicker. So this next one might seem like small potatoes, but if you're headed to Smith Rock State Park this coming summer, you're going to want to check the park's website in advance. And that's because for an extended period during July and August, they're going to replace a key bridge that's right in the middle of the park. Uh, if you've ever been there, it's the obvious one that goes over the Crooked River and provides access to a lot of the most famous parts of the park, like Monkey Face, like Misery Ridge, the Riverside Trail, and so on. So that area will be inaccessible, although the park will still be open, but you're going to want to plan that because it'd be a bummer to drive all the way out there, you know, plan to climb Monkey Face or, you know, do a great hike and you can't get to the best stuff. Jumping from there into some politics news, and this is a little old, but still something to keep an eye on. Uh, Oregon Senators Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley released their latest version of the River Democracy Act last December. The latest version of the bill would protect 3,215 miles of creeks and rivers across the states, and they'd be protected under the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. That means the area would be off limits to a lot of types of developments with the idea of keeping the waterways as pristine as possible. Crater Lake National Park announced that it was going to go completely cash-free this year, meaning that you will need a credit card or a debit card or buying a pass in advance to get in. They're not going to have that person at the booth in the same way that they have in the past. So that means can't pay cash, can't pay check. This has been happening on a lot of public lands lately as agencies look to save money by taking this action. You know, it frees up staff that are hard to come by. It saves money. In some areas, though, it's become tricky because it's complicated in remote parts of national forests where 
you know, the classic Iron Rangers. So, you know, you slip your envelope into those little Iron Rangers at trailheads. We've been doing that, it seems like, for decades, my whole life. The problem is those Iron Rangers have been getting robbed and vandalized at increasing rates, and that's expensive. So that's leading to this more cashless entry, even out in remote places. There are actually quite a few trailheads now where there is actually no way to pay unless you do so in advance. And, you know, in a lot of cases, you won't get a, a ticket for parking there if there's no way you can pay on site. But long term, paying with an envelope seems to be getting phased out in favor of this cashless system where you're, you know, paying for just about everything with a debit or a credit card or having to do it in advance. What else? Okay, I had a story about the new district ranger up at Detroit and how she is going to navigate managing, you know, the famous and very wildfire burned areas of Opal Creek and the Mount Jefferson area. So if you are big into the Detroit area, you might want to, you know, read that and, and get familiarized with the person who's going to be in charge up there. We've also got updates on how the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is planning to store about 600 trillion gallons of water in the Willamette Basin over the future years. They're just going through that process right now. They're taking public comments. So if you're interested in, you know, water, how it's stored, how it's released in the Willamette Basin, that process is going on right now. I also wrote about how a Biden administration directive to preserve mature or old growth forest uh, has led to changing a timber sale in the Mackenzie River corridor. And, uh, you know, that's something that we might see more often. Environmental groups are pushing, you know, agencies that are doing these timber sales to consider this directive, which does emphasize preserving those, you know, mature old growth forests that help, you know, mitigate climate change. So that's a priority there. And so we're seeing it play out on the ground a little bit. Finally, I wrote a fun story, and this is totally, <laughs> totally different than what I've been talking about, but you know, this is a mixed bag, like I was saying. I wrote a fun story for tips to learning to downhill ski with small kids. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that this is kind of a passion of mine. Last year, I got my two younger daughters into skiing, and it was just, it was an overwhelming experience, but also one of the best experiences I've ever had. And so I try to pour a little bit of a little bit of wisdom into it, you know, including tips for, you know, places you can go where kids ski free, uh, including, you know, just putting together totes and how to how to have them ready to go in the morning and just all the little things that might help if you are looking to get your younger kids onto the slopes. So I think that's going to wrap up this uh, newsletter edition of the podcast. Please do tell me, you know, if you are interested in this kind of format, if you want information this way. But uh, up next, we're going to take a break to hear from our sponsors. And when we return, we'll have a fun conversation about pulling off a road trip to Oregon's south coast and then down into the Redwoods. So stay with us for that. I'm Sarah Melton with the American Forest Resource Council. I love the outdoors and exploring the forests near my hometown. My job is to protect our forests and wildlife. I work to defend forest management projects in the courtroom and to support the workers and agencies who steward our forests and public lands. Good forest management based on the best science keeps our forests healthy, improves wildlife habitat, keeps our air and water clean, and gives us the sustainable timber we need for renewable and climate-friendly wood products. AFRC is proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more about us at amforest.org. 
message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. Beginning in the spring of 2023, the Tillamook Coast Visitors Association is excited to announce a volunteer vacation program that will bring groups from inside or outside Tillamook County to lend a hand in stewardship programs while also having a good time. One example of an itinerary would be spending one day clearing invasive brush or working on a hiking trail while the next day could include a guided hike or kayak trip, the type of activity that highlights the Tillamook area and shows why doing stewardship projects is so important. All meals and transportation are included for the groups that take part, which will ideally be between 8 and 12 people. The experience is free for those who take part. The program is designed to offer participants the opportunity to give back to our popular area while also learning the vital role stewardship plays in preserving our natural places. The program website will launch in March, so stay tuned for that. But if you want more information or to sign up early, contact Dan Hag, and you can reach him at dan at tillamookcoast, all one word, dot com. All right, welcome back. Well, to end things here, I've got a conversation about a great road trip that was part of our podcast on the best summer road trips that I recorded last summer with friend of the show, Franziska Weinheimer of the website Hike Oregon. And if you haven't checked out the website Hike Oregon, I highly recommend it. It has tons of great ideas for trips and hikes and all kinds of good stuff. So, so give that a look at hikeoregon.org. So uh, when she was on the show, we obviously talked about a lot of different road trips that was geared towards summer, but I'm picking out this one to, to replay here because this is a trip to Oregon's South Coast and the Redwood Coast that you can really do in the winter when you'll find very small crowds or in early spring, which is my favorite time to go. Uh, or you can, you know, plan this for the busier summer. Now the Redwoods get busy in the summer, but Oregon's South Coast universally a pretty good place to go to escape just the major crowds you'll find on, on the northern coast. So anyway, let's get into this to wrap up the episode. All right, so for our longer road trip for the month of June, we are both going to talk about kind of the same area, but in a little bit of a different way. Our trip is going to take us all the way down to Oregon's south coast and the magic area around the town of Brookings. So, Francisca, what is the place that you want to highlight down there? Yeah, so I have actually gone to the Oregon coast since I was a kid, and I honestly didn't think the coast could get any more beautiful until I went down to Samuel H. Boardman's state scenic corridor last year, way down near California border uh, near the town of Brookings. And uh, this linear state park is 12 miles long, and each viewpoint is seriously more breathtaking than the next. Um, there are multiple little parking areas, so you can get out of the car, stretch your legs, and check out hidden beaches, natural rock bridges, and wildflower-dotted cliffs and viewpoints. And the Oregon Coast Trail essentially connects all of these trailhead parking areas, so if you're interested in hiking 
a few more miles um, or even longer, uh, you can connect multiple beaches and viewpoints together. And I think if you wanted to, you can string together like a hike of the entire thing. Have you ever thought about trying that? I have actually. Yeah, I, that's on my list of things to do. Yeah. I think it's got a decent amount of uh, like places where you have to veer out onto to Highway 101, but I don't know. I've always mm -hmm. thought it'd be I'd always thought it'd be fun to just connect them all into one because you're right. That is a really really scenic coast. That might be the most scenic section of the entire coast overall. I think so. Yeah, I think it probably is. And there's actually kayaking tours, uh, sea kayaking tours that you can do oh, wow. if you want to get in the water down there and. You know, you kind of got to know what you're doing, but they're also not that intimidating. So if you went mm -hmm. down there and you took like a class or two, like you can get it done. And I've heard it's pretty great. It's that's one of the it's on my bucket list uh, for that sure. Sounds awesome. Yeah. So I'm going to stay in that corner of the world. Uh, the Boardman Corridor is, is great. And by the way, if you want to learn more about the namesake of the park, uh, Samuel Boardman, who was the father of Oregon's state park system. Uh, we just did a history of state parks in our last podcast, but a fun little teaser. So Boardman, the guy who basically built the state park system, he started out as a bankrupt farmer who basically got the job running state parks originally because he, be he believed in this idea that if you planted trees all over Eastern Oregon, it would summon the rain. Like that was, that was his big idea. Um, so basically back in the 1920s, he, worked for the highway department and they were just like, we need somebody to run this, this new little parks department. Um, who are we going to pick? Well, what about that guy that likes trees over on the East side of the state? Yeah, let's go with him. And so that was how we got the start. And that was the guy that built the state park system essentially from scratch. So an inauspicious start, but it ended up working out. But uh, to get back to the point here, um, since you've road trip down to Brookings and you're, you know, checking out the Boardman area, it's also important to visit the tallest trees on earth, the mighty redwoods, and they are even on Oregon soil down there. So there are old growth redwoods on Beaver State soil, and you can visit them, especially on two trails outside of Brookings. So one is the Redwood Nature Loop, and the other one is the Oregon Redwoods Trail. Both are very much worth visiting, and one of the reasons I like them so much is that it's much smaller crowds than you find in the California redwoods that are just to the south. So both trails, you're often wandering among these redwoods in solitude, and that's pretty cool because that there's not a lot of places to do that. As far as a base camp in that area, I like Loeb State Park, uh, which is just across from the Redwoods Nature Loop. So you can just camp there and then head across the way to those redwoods. I also like Harris Beach State Park, classic coastal park, pretty close to Brookings. Other activities in that area, there's uh, really good fishing on the Chetco River. If you get a, if you get like a little fishing guide down there, there's fantastic fishing across the South Coast, but especially on the Chetco. Uh, and it's also fun to stand up paddleboard on the Chetco River in the summer as it gets low. It's a really clear river. And as long as you're down there looking at redwoods, it's worth sneaking across the border and checking out Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park. The crowds get there pretty big during the summer, but if you go really early in the morning, it's definitely worthwhile if you just sneak down there. Make sure to go to the Grove of the Titans Trail, which just opened up. I, For my money, it is the most spectacular trees in the world anywhere, and so it's worth checking those out. We have old podcasts specifically about the Titans and road tripping around there, so worth going down there, even though I'm kind of focusing on the Oregon Redwoods. 
All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you like what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforests.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.